0: Why Acts and Why Paul? uh, Our brother brethren who were on the program committee asked me to uh, speak on that subject, and of course you will note that there will be a great many uh, times when uh, brethren will repeat what has already been said. But that's always good. You never can hear it too often and too much, I'm sure. For this cause, Why Acts and Why Paul? I hope that when this week is finished, we'll be able to answer those two questions. Why Acts and why Paul? What is the purpose and the primary teaching of the book of Acts? And why Paul? Why was it necessary to raise up another apostle when there were already twelve apostles? As our brother Booster said this morning at the nine o'clock hour, There are many who have thought that Paul should have been one of the twelve, and there are some who teach that. But I'm sure most of us here this morning recognize that the Apostle Paul had a special commission, and in no way could he have qualified to be one of the twelve. We hope that uh, we can give you the answers to these two basic questions, at least summarize the answers. You'll hear more about it in detail as the brethren bring us their messages later on. We are interested in noting that the answer to these two questions sets forth the difference between God's prophesied purpose and his unprophesied purpose. In our message this morning, we're going to try to summarize the reasons for the book of Acts and the reason for Paul's appearance on the scene when he did and his message and ministry. First of all, why Acts? What is the purpose and the message of the book of Acts? I'm sure that we realize that if we understand that, then we will be able to understand God's program and message for today. Now, the traditional teachings regarding the book of Acts have already been referred to, but we'll touch on them again. First of all, it is almost universally taught that the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2, is the birthday of the church. And many teach that the book of Acts is the history of the Christian church. It is interesting to note that the word Christian does not appear in the book of Acts, Till the 11th chapter. And yet there are many who say that the book of Acts is the history of the Christian so-called church. Now, in setting forth the doctrine and practice for the church today, many think that we ought to follow the pattern set forth in Acts. Now, I knew from having done some studying in the past that almost all of the well-known and uh, beloved Bible teachers through the past, uh, oh, 50, 75 years especially, have taught that the church began on the day of Pentecost. And a great many people just take that for granted. But I went through my some of my literature that I have in my study, and I just double-checked some of the quotations from great man of God whom you will all recognize. Dr. Arnold C. Gabeline in his annotated Bible, says, on the day of Pentecost, the third person of the Trinity came. His coming marks the birthday of the Church. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who was known as the Prince of Bible Expositors, in his book, The Acts of the Apostles, Referring to Acts 2, 1 to 4, says, This paragraph contains the story of the formation of the Christian church. Dr. W. Graham Scroggie, great English preacher, in his Know Your Bible, says, In Acts 1, 1 through 2, 13, we have the founding of the church. Dr. James M. Gray, who everyone in the Chicago area is familiar with, Dr. Gray was president of Moody Bible Institute when I was there. It was my privilege to sit in some of his classes. What a great man of God. But though Dr. Gray had a great deal of enlightenment regarding the gospel of grace and dispensational truth, Dr. Gray himself said this about Acts 2, 1-4. He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, came to dwell in the believers individually, and yet that individual indwelling by the Spirit naturally resulted in a corporate work uniting them all in one body, which is the Church of Christ. And then he gives us 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is from his Christian workers' commentary. I've had a great deal of blessing from reading Dr. Gray's book on uh, the entire Bible. Well, that's what it is. But I certainly can't agree with what he said there. Dr. Schaefer, whose writings have been such a blessing in my own life, I have his systematic theology, and I sure enjoy it. I've been blessed so often as I've studied uh, this great man of God's writings. And Dr. Schaefer, in major Bible themes, speaking of the church, says this, This company includes all these, and... Uh, and only these who have been saved in the period between the day of Pentecost and the return of Christ to receive his own. Dr. Henry Thiessen, lectures in systematic theology, many of the pastors in this room have that book, says, thus it is evident that the baptism of the Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost and that the church responded on that day. J.M. Darby, the great Plymouth Brethren writer, C.I. Schofield, William L. Pentengill, H.A. Ironside, William R. Newell, and almost all of their contemporaries have held that Pentecost marks the birthday of the Church, which is the body of Christ. And I want to just add this now. No wonder that Pentecostalism and Catholicism and many other isms have flourished and grown by leaps and bounds In recent years. Someone may say, what an imposing list of Bible scholars, and I agree. Many of these great men had a real insight into the Word of God, and they've been such a blessing to those of us who have spent some time studying this Word of God. Not that we believe we ought to get our doctrine out of men's writings. We ought to get it from this book. But, Some of these great men God has raised up that some of us who need some encouragement and help and enlightenment on spiritual truth can receive. And I greatly honor these men of God whom God raised up to help some of us who need help. But I want to say that even though this is an imposing list of great Bible scholars, Though some may say, could these men possibly all be wrong? I want to tell you that we believe they were wrong on this view of the book of Acts, especially. It should be obvious that Peter's reference to the things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, that's Acts 3.21, must be different than what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 16.25 when he speaks about those things which were kept secret since the world began. We believe that recognizing the distinctions in the Scriptures is tremendously important. This is what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And because so many of the Lord's people, preachers and laymen alike, those who seek to teach the Scriptures, have failed to recognize the difference between the message committed to the Twelve, and Peter especially, and the message committed to the Apostle Paul, we have all kinds of confusion, and many of the isms that we mentioned are prevalent and flourishing today because great men of God haven't seen, or if they did see, they didn't want to take a stand for the truth because it was very unpopular. Because of that, all of these false teachings, unscriptural, undispensational teachings, have grown by leaps and bounds through recent years especially. We believe that there is a consistent dispensational interpretation of Scripture. Our brother Ivan Bergner mentioned last night uh, Sir Robert Anderson's great book. I have a copy of it in my hand and I understand you can't even buy it now. They're out of print at the present time but if you if you have a copy, hang on to it. The Silence of God, one of the greatest books ever written. That's not armchair reading. You'll have to sit down and really study. But Sir Robert Anderson, and this is a part of what our brother Ivan quoted last evening. I just want to read this paragraph. I don't usually read books in the pulpit. I read on this book. But I want to read this paragraph. Sir Robert Anderson, as most of us know, was not... um, full-time preacher in the sense that we think of preacher today. He was a layman, but a tremendous student of the Word of God. He was the head man of Scotland Yard, the great police agency in England. And Sir Robert Anderson had real insight into those scriptures, I'll tell you. Just listen to this short paragraph. Everyone recognizes that the advent of Christ marked a signal change of dispensation, as it is termed. That is, a change in God's dealings with men. But the fact is commonly ignored that the rejection of Christ by the favored people and their fall in consequence from the position of privilege formerly held by them marked another change no less definite and important, Romans 11:15. And yet this text affords the solution of many difficulties and a safeguard against many errors. As indicated in these pages, it gives the clue to the right understanding of the Acts of the Apostles, a book which is primarily the record not as commonly supposed of the founding of the Christian Church, but of the apostasy of the favored nation. But it also explains much that perplexes Christians in the teaching of the Gospels. That's one short paragraph from this great book. If you have a copy, be sure you hang on to it because there may not be any more. We agree wholeheartedly with what Sir Robert Anderson said in this paragraph and in much of this great book. Now let's just give you a quick summary of the answer to the question, Why X? We believe this is consistent, dispensationally. I have taught, and I uh, believe with all my heart, that the book of Acts is like a bridge between the kingdom teachings of Christ and the gospel of grace preached and proclaimed by the Apostle Paul. It's the bridge that explains what happened. Why, if you were to compare, for instance, the book of Matthew... Let's say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you were to compare that with the teachings of the Book of Romans, it would be very evident to any honest, open-minded student of the Word that there's a great change, a great change has taken place. And if we didn't have the Book of Acts, we wouldn't be able to tell what had happened. But all of us who have done some studying in this great book recognize that the book of Acts bridges what seems to be a completely different message and it is of course rather than the record of the birth and history of the church of this age we believe that the book of Acts records the offer and the rejection of the message of the kingdom by Peter and as Pastor O'Hare used to say, and I always remember this little quote of his, he said, the last days of Israel are not the same as the first days of the body of Christ. And that's right. But all how many sincere believers who love the Lord have failed to see the difference between the last days of Israel and And, of course, the last days of the body of Christ. One of our BBI questions in the last exam was, what is the difference between the last days of Israel and the last days of the body? I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to hear many preachers talk about a great revival that was coming to the earth. An evangelist used to major on that And they used to urge believers to be right with the Lord and study their Bibles and get out the gospel and so on because there's going to be a great revival. And then I'd hear somebody else at a Bible conference say, the last days of the body of Christ are marked by apostasy and there could not possibly be a revival. And as a young Christian, I couldn't reconcile those two statements. There's going to be a revival, and there's not going to be a revival. But when I began to see the difference between the last days of Israel and the last days of the body, I immediately saw that the last days of Israel will be marked by great revival and a pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, while the last days of the body of Christ are marked by By terrible apostasy, a turning away from the truth. Well, I hope you see the difference between these two. We believe that in the book of Acts we have the gradual termination of one program and the emergence and the expansion of another. I don't know who originated this little idea of a... uh, triangle. I guess you call it a triangle. Uh, One program getting smaller and smaller and smaller and finally ending over here. Another program here getting smaller and smaller and smaller and pretty soon that ends over here. And in between these two points and I would personally put them between Acts 13 and Acts 28, there were two programs going on. And uh, I think seeing that clears up a lot of problems in the book of Acts. Now, the kingdom program was passing off the scene. It became smaller and smaller and finally ended. While the gospel of the grace of God started out small and became bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's God's message for today. Well, see, the book of Acts in that life puts it in its proper dispensational place, we believe. In the early chapters of Acts, Peter and the Eleven are the most prominent, while in the last half of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul takes over. Pastor O'Hare wrote a book one time called Paul Takes Over, and that's right. His name is mentioned some 120 times in the last half of the book of Acts, while in the first half, Peter and the eleven, and the message of the kingdom, is prominent. Why Acts? To sum it all up, let me just say this, without it, there is no explanation for the transition from Judaism to Christianity, if we can put it that way, for the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. For Paul's statement, there is no difference. When Christ, when he was here on earth in John 4, said, Salvation is of the Jews. But now we know that God looks at all men alike, and he hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all on the same basis. Now, in answering the question, Why Paul? I'm sure that our brethren that will be speaking later on in the conference will be giving you much light on this, but I'm going to just sum it up in this message this morning. Why Paul? Why did God save this greatest enemy of his and send him forth to proclaim salvation to all on the same basis? The answer, of course, is simply the superabounding grace of God. Paul gives his own testimony. We haven't used our Bible up to now, let's turn, please, to 1 Timothy 1. In 1 Timothy 1, starting with verse 12 through 16, we have the Apostle Paul's own testimony. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me or strengthened me, the Revised says, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, or first, or foremost. Albeit for this cause, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life eternal. Here the Apostle Paul says that he is a pattern Now, the word for pattern here is outline. Like if you uh, lay down a uh, drawing of some kind and you cut around it and then you lay it on a piece of paper and draw around it. The word pattern is outline. And Paul says he's an outline or a pattern of God's long suffering towards sinners in this age. And I want to say that every day of grace that goes by. Every day of grace that comes to us is a demonstration of God's long-suffering, is it not? But I believe also that the Apostle Paul has in mind here the fact that he is a pattern in Israel's salvation. You remember Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers? Was struck And he fell to the earth. In me first. This suggests the first of a new order. This is why we believe that the Apostle Paul was the first member of the body of Christ. We believe the body of Christ began with Paul. And he says, in me first. First of a new order. God has shown forth his long-suffering. And then we believe that Paul was an example and a pattern, especially because he was not only a Jew by birth, but he was a Gentile by citizenship. He was a Jew and a Gentile. And certainly all of us know that the body of Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles. In Acts 26, turn back with me there if you will. Acts 26, 13 to 19, we have the Apostle Paul's further testimony. <laughs> Starting with verse 13, <laughs> Paul is speaking uh, to King Agrippa. And he says, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. When we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goats. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? That I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things into which I will appear unto thee. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by Christ's faithfulness. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Here's the Apostle Paul's commission by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He didn't receive all of the revelations at one time. We believe that Paul received part of it when he was saved, part of it later on. And when we come to his last writings, we have the completed revelation. Now, he says, I was sent as a minister or a subordinate. The word minister there is not the usual word for minister, which means deacon or servant. But the word here simply means a subordinate. He said, I was sent as a minister, a subordinate, to do God's will and to do the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the witness. The word for witness, of course, is martyr. The English word, martyr. And he said, I was sent unto the Gentiles. Now, many have... uh, Failed to see that the twelve, as has already been mentioned, were sent to the nation Israel, as we read in Galatians 2, while the Apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Now the twelve were sent first to Israel only, Matthew 10. Then they were sent to Israel first, Luke 24. Matthew 28, Mark 16, and so on. But now God has sent the apostle of the Gentiles, the apostle of the church, to all men alike. I remember when I was first saved, we lived in the Chicago area here, and uh, I had some friends who were very much interested in Jewish mission work. Now, I noted that they always quoted Romans 1.16 to substantiate the fact that the Jew had priority. And I didn't understand in those days that Israel's priority is no longer. That God has concluded them all in unbelief, and there is no difference today. And I felt a little bit guilty because I had not gone to the Jew first. Now I recognize that the glorious gospel of God's grace goes to all men alike. And there is no distinction, no difference. And though Israel at one time were the sole recipients of God's message, and then they were the first recipients of God's message, today God looks at all men alike. And the message of salvation by grace through faith goes on. To every man you or Gentile. We want to say a word about his distinctive message in ministry. We read from 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21, the message of reconciliation. Again, I want to say that this message was never proclaimed before this. Paul was the first one to proclaim the message of reconciliation to all men alike. And I like very much what Dr. Schaefer says in his book when he says to be reconciled means to be made savable. There was a time when I thought that a person who was reconciled was saved. We realized that the whole world has been reconciled to God, and yet the whole world is not saved. When I saw that, that really threw a lot of light upon the message that God wants us to proclaim today. God has provided reconciliation. He has reconciled the whole world but only those who receive the reconciliation are children of God. In Romans 3, turn with me there please. I told our great Bible students to class that Romans 3 is one of the key chapters. I like the book of Romans is a key book. In Romans 3, we ought to all know what it says in Romans 3. In fact, I think if we had just Romans 3, we could uh, recognize our need of salvation and the fact that God has provided salvation by grace through faith. If we didn't have anything more than just the truth in Romans 3, thank God we have the whole book. And all of the teachings of the gospel of grace. But look, look with me at verse 21. But now, and that's a favorite Pauline expression. So often the apostle Paul indicates a change when he says, but now, that's a time phrase. But now. You see, he's been talking about the law in 19 and 20 and the purpose of the law. Now in verse 21 he says, But now God's righteousness without or apart from law or the works of the law is manifested or revealed, being witnessed or attested by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God, which is through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. Unto all and upon all men that believe, for there is no difference for all sin, and have come short of the glory of God. Salvation apart from law works. You know, there was a time when I thought that justification by faith in the Pauline epistles was different. Or I should say was the same as justification by faith in the Old Testament. I knew that men have always been justified by grace through faith. In what God told them. And as our brother's poster mentioned this morning. God told them to do certain works. As an evidence of their faith. Today... We believe that men are justified by grace through faith apart from works. That's the difference. Certainly, no one's ever been saved apart from God's grace and faith in what God has said in His Word. But Certainly, we know that salvation today is by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we call the finished work of Christ. And if the work is finished, how much is there left to do? Not one thing. Think of the multitudes of sincere, well-meaning people who are trying to add something to the finished work of Christ. That is what the Apostle Paul calls frustrating the grace of God. I would remind everyone in this audience once again that now in this evil age in which we live, in these last days of the church, the body of Christ, there's only one way to be saved, and that's by grace through faith apart from works of any kind. Romans 4, 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And then, of course, our favorite verse is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, One of our men who is here with his wife from Denver, I remember one of the first times they came to our services, he asked me, I I was speaking in our adult class about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and he asked me, he said, Would you say that uh, the word that in that verse is talking about salvation or faith? And I said to him, well, my view is that it's talking about faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I imagine that he wondered, because I've heard many others teach from that same passage, and have said that salvation is the gift of God. Well, I agree with that. The gift of God is eternal life. Certainly we agree that there. But well, however, when we come to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the comparison is not between salvation and works. The comparison, the contrast there, is between faith and works. And that faith not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now you may not all agree with that, but I would ask you to consider. Ephesians 3, 1 to 9. We had part of the bread this morning. I'll turn your attention to there to that passage before we go this morning. Ephesians 3, the first nine verses. Here we have the revelation of the mystery. And I'm going to just read a part of it. For this cause I call the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Since, No uncertainty there. Sins he heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me the new word how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words and some have thought that possibly when what he's referring to here is the reference to the mystery in Romans 16 very possible which in other ages, gofield margins this generation which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be or are fellow heirs, joint heirs, and of the same body, members of the joint body, and joint partakers of the promise, a definite article in front of promise there, the promise in Christ by the gospel. You see, this message was never revealed before the apostle Paul. Why Paul? Because up till Paul came on the scene, this glorious message of the gospel of grace based upon the finished work of Christ, apart from works, had never been proclaimed. And now... Paul says that Jew and Gentile are made one new man in Christ, in the body of Christ. And this glorious organism, it's not an organization. Many people are trusting in some membership in an organization somewhere. What a futile thing that is. I'm sure that you have met and I have met lots of folks who are trusting in a church membership for their salvation, who think that because they have their name on a church roll, they must be saved and must be on the way to heaven. Of course not. We have to belong to the church, the body of Christ. And we become members of that church when we believe the gospel and trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. This message was never revealed before Paul. It was hid in God, not in the Scriptures, as verse 9 suggests. And Gentiles now are included in God's glorious message of salvation. And it was all through the promise in Christ through the gospel. And back to 2.16 as we close we read that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. I told our people in Denver that I think Ephesians 3.6 and 2.16 define what the mystery really is. There's been some confusion in the minds of some of the Lord's people and those who love the gospel of grace as much as they understand of it just what the mystery really is. Now certainly, the gospel of God's grace, or the gospel of the grace of God, includes everything that was revealed to the Apostle Paul. I think that's the overall term. However, the mystery is a part of the gospel of grace. And the message of reconciliation is a part of the gospel of grace. That is the message revealed to the Apostle Paul. Without this revelation, you and I would be on our way to a priceless eternity in hell. Oh, I'm so glad that God revealed this message for all men alike to the Apostle of the Gentiles, the Apostle of the Church. And through him, we can not only have the joy and assurance of salvation, and of sins forgiven, but we can proclaim this glorious message to others. Why Paul? Paul was a chosen vessel for a unique and distinctive ministry. And his message, the gospel of God's grace, is the message you and I are not only to believe, but to proclaim to others.